namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato samma sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasami Well, continuing with these um, talks of Lumpur Sumatos from Volume 3 of uh, the anthology, uh, Direct Realization, and these are all talks from the book uh, The Way It Is, uh, being uh, teachings Lumpur gave during the winter retreat here at Amravati in 1988. This is the second of the five talks on dependent origination. Momentary Arising in Ajahn Buddha Dasa's book on dependent origination, he emphasizes that his approach has been on Paticca Samuppada as working in the moment, rather than in terms of past, present, and future lives. When you contemplate, when you practice, you realize that that is the only way it could ever be. This is because we're working with the mind itself. Even when we're considering the birth of a human body, we're not commenting on the birth of our own bodies, but recognizing mentally these bodies are these bodies were born then we note in reflection that mental consciousness arises and ceases in a moment so that the whole sequence of dependent origination arises and ceases in a moment the arising and the cessation from avijja are momentary it's not a kind of permanent avijja it would be a mistaken view to assume that everything began with avijja and would all cease sometime in the future in this sense, avijja means not understanding the Four Noble Truths. When there's understanding of suffering, origin, cessation and path, things are no longer affected by avijja. We see the perceptions with vijja, perceptions are conventional reality, no longer me and mine. For example, when there is vijja, I can say, I am Ajahn Sumato. That's a conventional reality, still a perception, but it's no longer viewed from avijja. It's merely a convention we use. There's nothing more to it than that. It is as it is. So a few things there. So Ajahn Buddha Dasa's book on dependent origination uh, is called Paticca Samuppada, Practical Dependent Origination. And he makes a very uh, strong point in that, that he's very consciously going uh, against the interpretation that is uh, put forward in the Visuddhimagga in particular, and also other commentaries over the years, um, which uh, talks about the 12 links of dependent origination as representing uh, three lifetimes. The, um, the, the, the links of Pachaya Sankara, being a previous life, and then Vijnana there being the... Um, uh, the kind of relinking consciousness uh, of a new birth and then um, the um, present lifetime and then going to um, Bhava and Jati, uh, a future lifetime, and Jara Marana Soka Parideva Dukkha Domanas Upayasa. So what's called the three life uh, interpretation. And so in the Visuddhimagga, that's the way that it's put across and, uh, and described as being the, uh, the meaning of it. 
Um, but as I've mentioned in, in previous readings, um, you do have uh, passages in the uh, in the Pali Canon that uh, talk uh, very directly and clearly about Paticca Samuppada as a momentary experience, and I'll read one of those in a, in a moment. Um, and uh, I think, as I also mentioned before, a venerable um, Paiuto, Somdet uh, Paiuto, um, did a, a research program for the, the commentaries and the, the suttas, and uh, looking at this point, he's a very thorough uh, and astute scholar. And uh, when he went through uh, all of the, the, the texts and the different references to, to dependent origination, he found that in the Pali Canon, about two-thirds uh, of the references um, uh, point to momentary arising, and one-third point to a, sort of a, a, a span of several lifetimes. And then uh, in the commentaries, it's the other way around. So in the commentaries, two-thirds refer to the three-life model, and one-third of the references refer to a momentary interpretation. So there's been a, a drift over, over the centuries towards that three-life uh, model. And uh, the Visuddhimagga was, um, was composed about, uh, I think, about a thousand years or so after the Buddha's time, so that it's quite a, uh, quite a few centuries uh, after the, the, uh, the Buddha uh, actually laid down the teachings originally. So that's... Uh, uh, what, it, uh, what um, Ajahn Buddhadasa put forward in his book was um, firmly grounded in the both in the suttas rather than the commentaries, and also um, very much pointing to that momentary interpretation. It was also something that Ajahn Chah was very um, uh, impressed and inspired by, and so when he talked about dependent origination, then it was usually that momentary um, uh, say momentary arising, the, the experience of Paticca Samuppada as a moment-by-moment -moment experience of, of Dukkha coming into being. And the image that Ajahn Chah um, gave in terms of trying to understand or, or track the different stages of dependent origination, the, the 12 stages um, sort of taking shape, he said it's rather like falling out of a tree and trying to count the branches on the way down. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's happening very, very fast, but you know, fud, ow, you know, when you hit the ground, it hurts. And so uh, Lumpur Chah had a, a very uh, brilliant and clear way of, of describing how these things operate. And so that um, is a good image to bear in mind. And also, I think there was a question the other day about, um, and Ajahn Buddhadasa makes a point in a number of his teachings that you can break the chain between sense contact and feeling, but uh, that requires an extraordinary amount of, of mindfulness in order to be able to sort of catch that particular branch, <laughs> to spot that branch on the way down. Also, um, when uh, Lumpur Sumedho says it, it, it would be a mistaken view to assume that everything began with avijja and will all cease sometime in the future. So sometimes people talk about avijja as a sort of like a sort of creation of the universe moment, like uh, the um, the source of creation as uh, ignorance. Um, but there's a, a particular teaching I'm very fond of, uh, and I quote quite often. It's Sutta number 61 in the Book of the Tens in the um, Anguttara Nikaya. And it starts off, the, the very first line of that, that particular sutta is there is no, um, there's no first point um, where you can say, oh, Avijja began at this point. 
Um, and uh, it, there was no Avija before this, and Avija began um, at that. He said that that is not to, to be seen. Or so it really, in that respect, um, that kind of uh, the idea of a beginning point of Avija, as if it was sort of when before before that there was just Vija in the universe, or however the universe might have been constituted, and then boom, you know, Avija began. Uh, very similar to the other, what are, they, what are called the, the four achinteya, or the four imponderables. Um, it's, a, it's a kind of a, another imponderable, or something that the thinking mind can't formulate. So that the four imponderables are the, um, the range of uh, the mind of uh, a Buddha, a fully enlightened Buddha, the, um, uh, the ultimate beginning of things, uh, all the uh, complete uh, workings of karma and vipaka, uh, ac action and its results, and then all the different levels of meditative concentration. Those, those are the four classical achinteya or imponderables. So this sort of beginning point for avijja, I think you can add in uh, as a, an extra a point. And uh, that... Um, when he says there is no, uh, there's no point where you can say avijja. Before this, there was no avijja, and then avijja began. You can't, that, as he says, that is not to be seen, or that that can't um, be described. Um, but he does also in that same sutta, uh, which is um, one of the teachings. I feel it's really good to get acquainted with and to know. He talks about the causes and conditions that, that support the arising of avijja. So it's not like where it sort of began um, uh, back in the mists of time, but rather how ignorance gets caused. And there's very few places in the Pali Canon where the Buddha speaks about that. There's, uh, I think, in um, uh, the discourse on, on, on right view, uh, the Samaditi Sutta, I, I think he talks about how the, the cause of ignorance is the asava, the outflows, um, to sort of that he says that's what the the causes and conditions for the arising of avijja is the asava, so the sense desire, um, views and opinions, um, becoming a, and ignorance. Um, you know, but the 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 asava, those uh, asava are the cause of avijja. But in this particular sutta, uh, sixty one of the book of the tens, then he goes into it in, in much more detail. And so uh, I feel it's a very significant teaching because uh, he uh, he's it start, it's one of these um, sequential processes uh, as he often produces. He says so ignorance uh, doesn't just uh, come into being on its own. There there are causes and conditions that, that support it, and uh, what one uh, what supports it is the five hindrances. The the um, so sense desire, ill will. Um, dullness, restlessness, and and doubt. So the five hindrances. And then he says the five hindrances also have causes and conditions that bring them into being, and that's the the uh, the three kinds of unwholesome act, unwholesomeness, um, unskillfulness in thought, in body, speech, and mind. And then he says, that, but uh, unskillfulness, unwholesomeness in body, speech, and mind that, that also has causes and conditions that support that. And it's a lack of sense restraint, being uh, uh, a, a, so uncontrolled in, in what you attend to, uh, say being reactive rather than responsive in terms of the, the senses, so being uncontrolled in the senses. And then that also has causes and conditions that, uh, for the lack of indriya sangvara, a lack of restraint, uh, and that is a lack of 
of mindfulness and clear comprehension. And then also he says there's a causes and conditions that, that support the lack of, of mindfulness and clear comprehension, and that is um, unwise reflection or the lack of, of wise reflection, ayoniso manasikara. And what is the supportive conditions for the lack of re uh, reflection or unwise reflection? Um, that is a, a lack of faith, a lack of sadha. And then what causes what's a or supportive condition for a, a lack of faith is not hearing the Dhamma. What's the cause and conditions for not hearing the Dhamma is to um, not be spending time with good people. And so, Sapurisa um, Sangseva. Uh, and so that if you don't, and so it, that, and that's the beginning point that he he uh, say refers to like sapurisa sangseva. Uh, if you don't spend time with good people, uh, then the whole chain of uh, supportive conditions for ignorance get, gets underway. Just as like with the first line of the um, uh, the Mangala Sutta, asevana chabala nang panditana chasevana, to not to associate with fools, but to associate with the wise. This is the highest blessing. So it's the same basic principle. Is like, who do you spend your time with? <laughs> Even living in a monastery, <laughs> who do you spend your time with? <laughs> uh, how do you spend your time? What, what are you talking about? Uh, and uh, who, who do you make friends with? And that, uh, that um, I feel, is something that's uh, really helpful to bring to mind. And then as he, he uh, points out, if you, uh, if you have good friends, you choose to spend time with Sapurisa, then that gives you more of an occasion to listen to the Dhamma teachings. Uh, if you listen to the good Dhamma, you know, Sadhamma Savana, listening to the good Dhamma, then that gives rise to faith, Sadha. Then yeah, uh, faith gives rise to wise reflection. Wise reflection supports mindfulness and clear comprehension, uh, intuitive wisdom, intuitive awareness. That leads to sense restraint, being responsive rather than reactive. And then sense restraint leads to uh, uh, the the three kinds of wholesome action, act, wholesome action in body, speech, and mind. And that wholesomeness uh, in, in action, that supports the four foundations of mindfulness. The four foundations of mindfulness support the seven factors of enlightenment, and the seven factors of enlightenment support true knowledge uh, and liberation. So... Um, that again, the whole chain begins with uh, with Sapurisa Sangseva, and uh, so uh, and I, I feel that's one of the principles that Lumpur Cha sort of built his his teaching on is cultivating the quality of Sangha, helping people to to live together, to work together, to to learn how to cooperate as a as a human group, to cultivate quite consciously that sense of of. Um, say, uh, respect and cooperation, collaboration, and supporting each other in, in the holy life, and that that is a, 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 a sort of primary means for helping the, the, the sources of ignorance to be <laughs> reduced and to, to, uh, to uh, uh, say, promote, to, to give strength to the, 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 um, the causes for, for knowledge and liberation. So then uh, Lumpur goes on to say, in this sense, avijja means not understanding the Four Noble Truths. So that's often um, the, one of the definitions of right view is seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. And that uh, wrong view is not seeing things in terms of the Four Noble Truths. So it doesn't mean um, knowing the words of the Four Noble Truths, you know, suffering, origin, cessation, and path. 
but really seeing you know, framing the world uh, in that format so that you're, you're rather than thinking i like i don't like you're you're seeing uh, here is suffering here is the ending of suffering <laughs> that uh, that's the framework that the the the, the lens or the uh, the uh, the the kind of the window that you're looking through uh, onto uh, the experience of uh, the world or or your mind is that framework of the four noble truths is the framework for holding experience but then he goes on to say um, we see perceptions with vicha perceptions are conventional reality no longer me and mine for example, when there is vicha, I can say I imagine tomato as a conventional reality. It's still a perception, but it's no longer viewed from avicha. It's merely a convention that we use. There's nothing more to it than that. It is as it is. So uh, again, as I was saying a few readings ago, that um, when the, the one time when the Buddha was challenged about his use of language, saying, you know, if, if all dhammas are not self, you know, how come, uh, Venerable Sir, you use words like uh, he and she and we and they, you use all these personal pronouns, doesn't that go against your teachings that sabe, dhamma, anatta, all dhammas are not self? And the Buddha res rep responds by saying that these, the Tathagata uses that kind of language for the, for the convenience of communication. And it, it, those words, those terms are used without confusion, without delusion. So any questions, thoughts? Yes, Anagarika Riyasara. I have a question about the asava. About the asava? Yes, mm -hmm. yeah. What is the relation between asavas and the fetters? And the what? Fetters. Fetters, uh, Sanyojana. The fetters, oh, right. Um, <laughs> they, they overlap. Uh, so the, 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 sometimes you get a list of three asavas, sometimes you get four. So you have um, karmasava, sense desire, and then uh, bhavasava, the, as, uh, the outflow of becoming, and then dittasava, the outflow of views and opinions, and then avijasava, the outflow of ignorance. So um, they, uh, I think the, you could say that the asava is a more general so summary of uh, of those kind of obstructive qualities, the ten fetters go into more detail, and they're particularly listed um, with respect to the the levels of, of realization. So you have you know the, the first three are sakayaditi um, <clears throat> self view, and then um, see, uh, and then doubt vichikicha doubt about what is the path and what is not the path. And then sila patavaramasa attachment to uh, rites and rituals, conventions, uh, and so forth. Um, so that you could say that um, the um, the uh, in that respect, say ditasava, the uh, attachment to opinions is uh, somewhat related to sila patavaramasa, also somewhat related to getting beyond doubt. Then the um, the next um, two. Uh, of the of the fetters are um, biapada and karmachanda, so you know, ill will and sense desire, and so that they are for a for a once returner they are reduced. They're not completely eradicated, but they're reduced. So that would be related to karmasava, uh, the outflow of sense desire, 
So that that sort of overlaps there, and you know, ill will I think is also <laughs> it's the kind of sense desire, but with a uh, a pushing away rather than a grasping hold. Um, then you have the um, the next ones are rupa raga and arupa raga. The uh, sort of they were the the fetters um, uh, six and seven. So that's a attachment to. Um, blissful states of mind. So that's, a, in a way, it's a kind of extension of the uh, sense desire, uh, karma, uh, karmasava. And then the the last three of the samyojana is asmimana, the conceit of identity, and then udacha, being restlessness, and avicca. And so um, that kind of udacha, though, is uh, sort of is only let, you know, is let go of by the arahant, and um, it's not just of the udacha kukucha of the, uh, I would say, of the uh, of the five hindrances. It's, it's much more subtle than that. Not just sort of fidgeting on your cushion because you you, you want to go and have a cup of tea or your your legs are aching, but that kind of that sort of level of the ninth fetter, um, at least how I understand it, is the the it's a very subtle kind of restlessness which says that is more interesting than this. There's something off in the future, the imagined future, that's more interesting or less painful or more fulfilling than this. So it's a, in a way, the mind still caught into subject and object, past and future, and so that there's a, a the, in a way, it's not seeing that the Dhamma is here and now, but oh, if this if this would change, then that would be it would be better. Um, so that. That kind, that kind of um, subject-object duality, past, uh, past, present, future uh, divisions um, feed that that kind of subtle udacha. So it's a, it's not. You can be perfectly still on your cushion <laughs> uh, and not have any physical restlessness, but still have that. Ooh, in a moment it's going to be better, or in a moment uh, there's something that's. Uh, is different to this, so it's it, it's the uh, non-recognition that the Dhamma is a kaliko, is timeless, is is intrinsically ever-present. So sanditiko uh, means ever-present, you know, apparent here and now. So that kind of udacha is that missing that the the Dhamma is is ever-present. It's like oh, <laughs> the Dhamma is over there. It's not here. <laughs> that's more interesting. That's richer, more real, more absolute than than this. You you can follow that. So that, uh, um, uh, uh, I would say, is part of the avijasava, the outflow of ignorance, that, that kind of subtle sort of not seeing clearly. And then avijja is, a, is also uh, related to that, avijasava, the outflow of ignorance, that, the tenth of the ten fetters. I've never really sort of lined them up before, it's just sort of off the top of my head, but, uh, they, but they, they overlap in various different ways. Thank you, Ajahn. So if we eradicate asavas, that means automatically we eradicate the fetters. Yeah, the, um, well, one of the, the ways of representing arahantship is keen asava, the, the outflows have stopped. So the, the uh, asavakaya, um, asavakaya jnana, the, the knowledge of the ending of the asavas. So that's... that's, that's a, um, a way of describing full enlightenment, so that they 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 kind of, particularly avijasava, the outflow of ignorance, that 
It's only at arahatship that that, that outflow stops altogether. So asavakaya jnana, the knowledge of the stopping of the outflows, the, is, um, is very, very commonly used as a um, description of someone realizing uh, arahatship. Okay. Can you use the microphone? Yes, um, Ajahn. I, I was wondering, you were talking about Sapurisa Sang Seva, um, associating with good people, and that in contrast to solitude and seclusion, being on one's own, not, not mixing with people. Um, how one would skillfully balance, balance it to, in particular, for example, if somebody has a strong tendency to just want to be alone and not want to mix with anybody, would there be any value in deliberately kind of cultivating certain relationships and friendships to get that Saparisa Sangseva? Because obviously the suttas also emphasize solitude a lot. So I'm just wondering about the balance between the two and that skillfully. Yeah, it's a good question. Uh, it's one of those things that's going to be a lot of, lot of local variance. Um, the, the, the kind of uh, attachment to solitude, the, the, the Buddha criticized, you know, where, you, where one particular monk who was just known as Tara, uh, the elder, um, in particular, that he, he would lived alone, he would go on arms around alone, he would meditate alone, did everything alone, and was really into that kind of solitude. And then the Buddha invited him to, to have a conversation and pointed out that, you know, that the real, you know, you're, you're respecting solitude, you're looking for that. But the real solitude is in, in terms of your attitude. That's where we're genuine solitude. So attaching to solitude in a worldly sense, it can be obstructive. Um, I think uh, it's the kind of area where it's good to examine you know, wh uh, what's the basis of me wanting to be alone um, and wh where's that coming from and that not just assuming that it's a good thing, oh, is this praised in the suttas, therefore it's good. So, for example, um, Lumpur Cha, he really liked being alone and he saw that his practice, uh, quote-unquote, pro progressed very well when he was by himself. Um, and that he could get into being a, a very a bright states of mind, good states of concentration, have a lot of insight. But then when he was with other people, that's when he would lose his temper or get restless or, or, um, or find himself getting caught up in, in judgments and opinions. And he had the wisdom to realize, well, I like being alone and wholesome qualities arise from that. But what I need to learn from is actually being with other people. And so that he quite, and, and again, it's one of the reasons I, I, I understand that he set up his monasteries and his teaching in a very communal form, more so than most other forest monasteries, precisely because he'd, he'd learned so much from having to, to work with the company of other people. So he, 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 liked, he liked aloneness, <laughs> he liked solitude, but it was because his defilements weren't being challenged. Uh, in his case, I mean, it's going to vary from person to person, you know. That, uh, uh, and so I think it, it's up to each one of us to to explore motivation and to see well, where where you know, I want to be alone or I don't want to be around other people. Uh, where's that coming from? What's behind that? Uh, is it wholesome? Is it unwholesome? What's what's the cause of this? And using that capacity for wise reflection to to consider that to see. Um, 
not to just say, oh, you know, the Buddha praised this, therefore, <laughs> therefore it's good, but to say, well, yeah, it, because it also uh, it, it matches my preferences, and that um, uh, and I don't like all the work I have to do if I'm around other people, so on and so forth. So that and everyone varies so much that it's it, it's um, it's good to uh, explore that and to if there's the mind sort of maneuvering and manipulating to try and get away from other people to be by yourself, um, to to have things sort of completely sort of run according to the ways you wish. You to when you act on that or you 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 work things in that way, then look at the result of it. Um, how do you feel when somebody shows up? <laughs> uh, how do you feel when um, you have to leave that and go off to spend time with your family or something? You know? But uh, what uh, what is the mind doing with that? So, uh, and uh, as I've said, you know, over and over again, is uh, adaptability is the real key to happiness. So that, and again, that that the teaching that the Buddha gave to Tara, who was um, somewhat obsessed with solitude, uh, that uh, he uh, points out that you know the real solitude is in your attitude. That's where you you develop a genuine independence, and it's a it's a it's not just kaya viveka, but jitta viveka, and then upadi viveka. It's not just seclusion from other people, but jitta viveka, the inner seclusion, the ability to be around other people and to be engaged in activity and and to be involved in community and decision-making and, and such like, but to cultivate that jitta viveka, that inner seclusion. And then upadi viveka is, is a, a, a much more profound quality of, uh, of non-entanglement, uh, detachment. And so that was part of um, the reason why Lumpur Sumedha chose the name Chitta Viveka for Chithas Monastery was because he had this very strong insight when he was living in London um, that uh, he kept getting this feeling of like, why do all these people keep coming? And, you know, I was so happy off in my kuti in, in Thailand at the Wat Bapong or Wat Narachat and, and uh, I don't have to teach all these people and... Uh, have to be living in this little vihara in the middle of London, and you know, I want to go back to the forest. And he could see that he was really um, obsessing on Kaya Viveka. And because he's such a sort of reflective person and he could <laughs> read his own mind, he thought, what am, I, what am I doing here? And then he saw, well, how many people are teaching Buddhist meditation in the United Kingdom at this time? About three. You know, particularly how many people are interested in Buddhist you know, amongst uh, Westerners? How many people are interested in Buddhist monasticism? Yeah, you know, where 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 are the resources they can go to where people can teach Buddhism in English? It's about three. You know, Dr. Ray was a Dhamma up in Birmingham. Um, Buddha Padipa, there was some uh, of the, the monks there could speak English, and also Dr. Saratisa, the the Vihara and London Buddhist Vihara. So four. <laughs> that was about it. So I thought, well. Um, you're living in England, you've responded to this invitation, so of course people are going to show up. Anyone who's interested in Buddhist meditation and monasticism, where else are they going to go? There's not a lot of choices. So you know, who's, who's being the fool that you're resenting all these people showing up? And that you know, you've got a lot of resources, you have a lot of experience, you've got a lot of things to share, you're very good at explaining things. So, um, yeah, uh, say revering the quality of kaya viveka and wishing that you were physically alone is, is missing the point because living in this situation kaya viveka is not an option 
it's not possible really in uh, to a great extent so he consciously started to develop the quality of jitta viveka as like an internal seclusion even as he was living in london and lots of people coming to visit and giving teachings he was uh, consciously cultivating that sort of inner uh, withdrawal or inner sort of disentanglement and uh, and so he also began using the listening to the the sound of silence as a support for that and so then and he found that extremely valuable that uh, he could uh, rather than resenting all the people and the noise of, of living in London, he could see, oh, look, you know, you can be around a lot of people and be engaged, and there can still be this quality of, of seclusion, of viveka, even in the midst of all of that. And so that was a, a, a real big turning point in his practice. And he saw, oh, I've been totally focused on kaya viveka, but that's really the most mundane aspect of, of viveka. And... Uh, and so then that was such a, 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 an important um, insight for him that when the, um, when the offer of the forest came up and then they, uh, it was quite a kind of a coincidence that the village was called Chithurst, the Chit in Chithurst. There's even a Chitter's Cottage, C-I-T-T-A-S, on Chithurst Lane. It's spelled like Pali Chitter, Chitter's Cottage. Who knows where that name came from? But uh, it's supposed to be the name of a local goddess, actually, the, the word chitta um, in the old English uh, language. But um, uh, he gave the name Chitta Viveka to the monastery because of that, uh, that insight. So that um, uh, I think the Sapurisa Sangseva uh, aspect is that when, you, when you're in community or you're necessarily engaged with with um, people and the world, then to be making your choices. Like, well, who do I want to spend my time with? And if I'm with people, what do we talk about? What, what are we spending our time doing? That's also part of that. Um, that's what makes it sapurisa rather than just purisa. <laughs> that uh, you're, um, you're using a quality of discernment about yeah, how, how you, who you draw close to and how you spend your time and... and uh, what's beneficial and what's what's wasteful. You're not to be sort of judgmental or finding fault with others, but just to be considering, well, do I need to be spending my time just uh, in, engaged in this conversation or could there be something, is there enough uh, enough of this today and I just go off and be, my, be by myself in my room or my kuti? Um, and so that there's a... a um, uh, a discretion or discernment around how we uh, how we spend our time, who we spend our time with, what's beneficial and supportive to us and and to other people, and what this is more um, distracting or confusing or gets you stirred up and gets you caught into opinionating and and uh, so on and so forth. Okay, so to carry on. When we reach the, the cessation of ignorance, at that moment, all the rest of the sequence ceases. It's not that one ceases and then another ceases. When there is vijja, suffering ceases. In any moment, when there is true mindfulness and wisdom, there's no suffering. Suffering has ceased. When you contemplate the cessation of desire, the cessation of grasping, upadana, there is a cessation of becoming, the cessation of rebirth and suffering. 
When things cease, when everything ceases, there is peace. There is knowing, serenity, emptiness, not self. These are the words, the concepts, describing cessation. When I practice in this way, I find it's very difficult to find any suffering. I realize there isn't any suffering except in a heedless moment when one gets carried away with something. So, because of heedlessness, lack of attention and forgetting, we get caught in habitual karmic mind stuff. But when we realize that we've been heedless, we can let it go. We can let it cease. There is the letting go, the abiding in emptiness. No longer are there the strong impulses to grasp. The fascination and glamour of the sensory, the sensory world have been penetrated. No longer is there anything to grasp. One can still experience and see the way things are without grasping them. There's nobody grasping anything. They can still be feeling, seeing and hearing, taste and touch, but they are no longer created into a person, me and mine. For me, the important insight is just how momentary, sense con momentary consciousness is. The tendency is to perceive consciousness as a long-term thing, being awake and conscious as a permanent state of being rather than a moment. And yet vijnana is always described as a moment, a flashing moment, an instant. So rather than assume that avicca is a continuous process from, from the birth out of our bodies, we can see that at any moment there can be vijja and the whole thing just ceases. The cessation of that whole mass of suffering can be realized. It's gone. Where is it? So uh, it's uh, useful to understand or give some consideration to the word niroda. So uh, it's um, usually translated as cessation, but it comes from the the um, the Pali root uh, rud uh, and rujiti, which doesn't just mean the ending of a thing that has begun. It also means the non-arising of something, or the the the, the checking, the, the the limiting of something, and so that. Um, when uh, when we're reciting the the uh, the words of the chanting, and again, there's a very help in uh, uh, in Pikku Payuto's book on dependent origination. There's a, a chapter also it's repeated the whole thing in in the island called um, uh, a problem with the word nirota, and he describes very very clearly um, what the issue is because. Uh, uh, and as Lung Po Sumedho puts it here, when there is vicha, then it's not like the avija stops and then the sankara stops and then the, um, the namarupa stops and so forth. But it's like when there is vicha, when there's awareness, then the whole thing stops. It's like the, with the cessation of avija, then there's a, there is no suffering. The, 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 the whole of that chain doesn't come into being. So that's helpful to, to be bearing that in mind. And uh, also I thought I'd read this particular um, passage from the Majima. This is from Sutta 140, the, the exposition of the elements, the Datu Vibhanga Sutta. And uh, the Buddha says, I am is a conceiving. I am this is a conceiving. I shall be is a conceiving. I shall not be is a conceiving. I shall be possessed of form is a conceiving. I shall be formless is a conceiving. I shall be percipient is a conceiving. I shall be non-percipient is a conceiving. Conceiving is a disease. 
Conceiving is a tumor. Conceiving is a barb, like a, a hook. By overcoming all conceivings, bhikkhu, one is called a sage at peace. And a sage at peace is not born, does not age, does not die. They are not shaken and are not agitated, for there is nothing present in them by which they might be born. Not being born, how could they age? Not aging, how could they die? Not dying, how could they be shaken? Not being shaken, why would they be agitated? So that's one of the instances where that um, uh, birth and the, the kind of, uh, um, uh, say, the imagery of dependent origination is very much talking about psychological birth and psychological death. It doesn't mean that the, the body is not going to, to die one day, but it's uh, not being born into things, not, uh, not say, having that quality of, of identification and, in, and entanglement. So that is... Um, there are one of those, those clear references. And also that conceiving is the Pali, uh, the English translation of the Pali word manyati. Uh, so mana, conceit, and manyati, they are very closely related. Um, and so that uh, when yeah, Lumpur is speaking in this way, that, uh, yeah, there's it's, uh, that kind of cessation. Uh, it doesn't mean that you stop seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching. The sensory world... Um, as he says, the, the sensory world is still operating, but there's nobody grasping anything. There's still feeling, seeing, hearing, taste and touch, but they're no longer created into a person, into me and mine. Then uh, as he goes on to talk about uh, momentary consciousness, then he's uh, very much talking about vijnana as one of the, the five khandas there, so sensory consciousness. So the way he tends to use the word consciousness nowadays is far more in the a sort of transcendent awareness. In this particular instance, he's using uh, the word consciousness as the uh, as it is in dependent origination or as in the five khandas. It's a sense consciousness which is very um, uh, momentary. So it means a, a, a partial or fragmented knowing, a discriminative consciousness uh, that arises and passes very very rapidly. So that's I say. Um, uh, another a good instance of the same word being used in different ways. So it's um, if you're thinking, hang on a minute, Lumpur's always talking about consciousness being the unconditioned and such like nowadays. And, but uh, I say it's the same word with a different meaning. Um, it's being used in a in a different way. So that this is uh, discriminative consciousness or sense consciousness, that which say discerns and uh, compares one thing to another. Any questions, thoughts? Is that all clear enough? You've got the microphone then, all of you. Okay, I'll carry on. To practice this way is to keep examining things so that everything is seen exactly for what it is. Everything is only what it is in the moment. When we see that beauty is just beauty in the moment, ugliness is just that in the moment, there's no attempt to solidify it or prolong it in any way, because things are just what they are. One is increasingly aware of the formless or nebulous as just what it is, rather than something that is overlooked, dismissed or misinterpreted. So nebulous means vague, or literally means like, like a cloud, like a nebula, it's like a 
um, uh, a cloud uh, in this, amongst the stars is a, a galaxy. So nebulous uh, means cloud-like. The problem of perception is that it tends to limit us just to being conscious of certain points. We tend to be conscious at certain designated points and the natural change and flux and flow are not really noticed. One is only conscious at A, B, C, D, E, F, G. The points between A and B are never really noticed because one is only really conscious at the designated points of perception. That's why when the mind is opened with vijja and is receptive, Dhamma reveals itself. There's a kind of revelation. The empty mind in the state of wonder allows truth to be revealed, but no longer through perception. This is where it is ineffable truth. Words fail us, and it's impossible to put it into perceptions or concepts. So again, Lumpur is talking about this, um, these kind of subtle areas where when the mind lets go of perception and um, the particular objects of perception of what we see or what we hear, so like noticing the the space between A and B, or noticing the space between people, or the you know the the space here in the temple, um, that the the eye goes to you know to the microphone or the camera or the pillar or Sister Jayavira, Sister Nyanasiri, you know, to uh, the the uh, the monks uh, over here, Tanidaro Tan Manunyo. But the space between Tanidaro and Tan Manunyo is not as interesting as the the monks. It's like the attention goes to the humans because they're more interesting. They they have got more information around them. There's more story, more history than the space between them, which is vague, which is nebulous, formless. And so uh, the conditioning of our senses is to go to the the forms, uh, the, the objects of perception. But uh, when there is a, a, that sense of opening of the heart uh, and say, letting go of the, the sense objects. The sense objects are still there, but the heart is more able to, to apprehend, to receive the, the, the whole picture so that the, the space of the room or the space to, between things is as much a part of the, the picture and is, is as appreciated as the objects of, of sense. And that in that opening of the heart to, to the, the, the whole moment, then what we experience is wonderment, as, as Lumpur says here, the empty mind is in a state of wonder and allows the truth to be revealed, but no longer through perception. So again, it's, it's difficult to talk about or to, to describe exactly, but it's when you, in a sense, let the mind know the empty nature of perceptions and thoughts, then there's a, a, a brightening of the heart. There's a, a quality of richness or wonderment uh, is a, a good word, I feel, for this. That uh, is uh, uh, peaceful, it's bright, it's clear, um, and so that you can still hear and see and smell and taste and touch. The sense world is still going on. There can be, still be thought and memory and, and imagination and so on. But it, it's, uh, it's a, a mysterious process and uh, that the, that quote, what we speak about as nibbana or, or peacefulness um, or the, you know, the cessation of, um, of, of suffering, that uh, these are all ways, different ways of, de uh, of describing that quality of the richness of heart or the quality of wonderment, um, clarity and peacefulness that comes when that, the empty nature, the selfless nature of 
perceptions is, is realized. There's a, a poem that I like to quote um, that was written by a former uh, bhikkhu who uh, was a, dis, a bhikshu, a disciple of Master Shunhua, uh, Marty Verhoeven, was Hung Chao. It goes, uh, life is truly a dream. All of its troubles I alone create. When I stop creating, the trouble stops. With a single mind, with an unbounded heart, we can wake up to wonderful existence within true emptiness that we are in the middle of right now. When all the world ceases to exist, only the wonderful remains. I think it's a, a very, a, a very um, beautiful expression of that. When all the world ceases to exist, only the wonderful remains. And when I asked Hung Chao if I could have permission to put that in one of my books, he said, did I write that? <laughs> so he'd forgotten that he'd written it. And I said, well, I was hoping to be able to quote where you, where you, where you published it. And he said, you sure I wrote that? <laughs> so I said, yeah, I didn't make it up myself, but uh, I got it from um, one of their publications. And uh, it's sort of stayed with me ever since. But I think that's a, a lovely expression of that. When all the world ceases to exist, it's not like the annihilation of the planet or, or sort of a dismissal or a rejection, but it's soli the solidity of the world, uh, of our thoughts, our feelings, our emotions, when they are recognized as transparent, as, um, as a coreless or uh, empty, sunya, then what remains is the wonderful, is that, uh, that quality of, of wonder in the heart. And uh, there's, uh, there's a natural um, inability to, to pin that down or to, to um, specify exactly what that, that quality is. And as Lungpo says, one is increasingly aware of the formulas or nebulous as just what it is. But there, there's no need to sort of pin things down or, or to, to have a precise terminology because what's important is the ending of suffering. <laughs> that's, that's the key. Uh, the key part of it is that sense of of complete integration, wholeness, and uh, and peacefulness that comes with that. Maybe now you are beginning to appreciate the emphasis the Buddha made. I teach only two things: there is suffering, and there is the end of suffering. If you have just that insight into understanding suffering and then realize the end of suffering, you're liberated from ignorance. If you attempt to speculate on what that is like, you could call it Nibbana, the highest happiness. But, quote, highest happiness, unquote, is not quite it either. To expect the highest happiness sounds like expecting to get high, floating in the air, reaching Nibbana and floating up into the ceiling. Floating up to the ceiling. But the way is one of realization, mindfulness and realization. The Eightfold Path is development, bhavana, to develop that path to right understanding. More and more we realize the emptiness, the not-self, the freedom from not being attached to anything, which affects what we say, what we do, and how we live in the society that we're in by increasing the sense of serenity and calm. The word Nibbāna is generally defined as non-attachment to the five khandhas, which means no longer experiencing a sense of self with regard to the body and mind, rūpa, vedana, sanya, sankhara, vijnana. We no longer contemplate the five khandhas with avicca, ignorance, but with vicca, awareness. We see that they are all impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. 
Nibbana is the realization of non-attachment wherein the self-view ceases. The body is still breathing, so it doesn't dissolve into thin air, but the mistaken identity that I am the body, quote-unquote, dissolves. The mistaken identification with Vedana, Sanya, Sankara, Vijnana, all that ceases. The self dissolves. You can't find anybody. You can't find yourself because you are yourself. Uh, a way that Lumpur would customarily illustrate that, he would say, it's like trying try to, uh, to find yourself. He, he said, it's rather like trying to find your eyes. He said, you know, you can see, but if you, if you think you should be able to make the object of awareness, the, the, the source of awareness an object, it's like trying to see your own eyes. And uh, he would uh, sometimes go into these little kind of imaginative riffs say has anyone seen my eyes I'm, I'm sure they're around here somewhere uh, I, I can see so I know they must be here somewhere has anyone seen my eyes I can't I can't see them anywhere and so that you know looking for your own eyes uh, as he says you can't find yourself because you are yourself <laughs> so he would use that uh, uh, that uh, say analogy of trying to trying to see your own eyes or looking looking for your eyes it's like well the important thing is you can see <laughs> there is seeing you don't have to make that uh, that uh, medium of of seeing something that is uh, is is visible it's kind of crazy to be looking for your eyes when you can already see you don't have to make it an object because that's the very means whereby you are seeing Does that make sense do say if it doesn't Any other questions, thoughts? Okay. In the traditional view of dependent origination occurring over the span of three lives, the five khandas are seen as a kind of permanent form from birth. The body, feelings, perceptions, mind formations and consciousness are considered as being continuous from birth. But that's an assumption we make. And the reflection of momentary arising points to the mind itself. The body isn't a person anyway. It's not me and mine. Never was, never will be. There's only the perception of it as me and mine, the belief that I was born. I have a birth certificate to prove that this body was born. We carry birth certificates in our mind. We carry around the whole history, the memories and so forth of our lives, giving us this sense of a continuity of a person from birth to the present moment. But examination of perception alone shows that perception arises and ceases. This perception of me as a permanent personality is just a moment. It arises and ceases. Consciousness too is just momentary and conveys the attractive, repulsive and neutral qualities of the conditioned realm. When one sees that clearly, there is no longer any interest in that attachment and in seeking for happiness trying to be reborn into happiness or beauty, pleasure, safety or security. Rebirth is a grasping of the conditioned realm. So we let that go. The five khandas are still the five khandas, but they are seen for what they are, as impermanent, unsatisfactory and not self. So this reflection on the truth of the way it is, is very direct, very clear. From the, from the confused, amorphous, nebulous, insecure, unstable, uncertain, to the certain. Whatever it is, we're no longer choosing which we prefer. We're just noting that whatever arises, ceases. As you realize this through your practice, 
A lot of the vagueness and fuzziness of your mind are seen for exactly what they are. Confusion is just confusion. Just that. It's a dhamma. Confusion is just, is just confusion in the moment. It's not, a perm, it's not permanent or the self. So what before was a problem or something deluding us is transformed into a dhamma. The transformation is not through changing the condition, but through changing the attitude from ignorance to clarity. So this is a, a helpful principle, I feel, that um, because sometimes we can revere clarity or understanding and we want to not be confused or to have everything straight and clear and neatly arranged. And, you know, I'm, a, I'm a lover of lists and orderliness in my, my own character. I, you know, I uh, uh, enjoy having everything neatly laid out and, and ranked and numbered and little, put into little boxes, the... The, the tables function of Microsoft Word is something I greatly enjoy having. <laughs> Organizing events and making lists of things and putting people's names into boxes and dates and uh, functions. There's something that says, yes, you know, I like that. But if we take refuge in putting things into boxes and having everything in order, then when things are confusing or they don't go into the box, uh, or the boxes fall apart, then we can make a lot of, uh, of suffering out of that. So one of the things that I feel is, is really helpful is just uh, 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 is to take this principle that Lumpur is describing here and to recognize that that which knows confusion isn't confused. That which is aware of the, I don't know what the heck's going on. Yeah, that, uh, that knowing is, uh, is a, a refuge. That, that is a, a, a basis for our freedom, our liberation. That... Most of life is pretty mysterious anyway and doesn't go into boxes <laughs> very, very conveniently. And that uh, the, the capacity to, say, allow things to be fuzzy or unclear, to be, to be confused, you can, you can be completely at peace with a lot of fuzziness. Just as, you know, you can, you can be unwell or you can be sleepy or you can have a, you know, or having a fever. And your uh, thinking functions can be all over the place but you can be fully aware that the mind is all over the place or that you're, there's a lot of confusion. You, you don't know what's going on. You're getting conflicting messages. You can know, oh, here, here are conflicting messages. This is the experience of, of, uh, of not knowing what's going on. That's what this is. And in that moment, even though the thinking mind can't arrange things neatly, there isn't any suffering. It doesn't mean that you don't care but you're not trying to, to build your happiness upon having, having everything in order, in, in an orderly, definable fashion. So this is a, a, a really significant point, um, that we don't have to run away from the confused, amorphous, nebulous, insecure, unstable. Uh, that just that, that knowing, oh, this is really confusing, or this is, this is really vague, I can't see clearly. You can... You can recognize that things are not clear, like, you know, at night, it's nighttime, it's dark, you can't see uh, clearly because of, of the absence of sunlight, you know, the, it's, it's nighttime, so of course it's dark, you can't discern clearly what's going on because there isn't light, but we don't have to create suffering out of that lack of, that lack of clarity, that's something that the, the mind is, uh, say, adds on to the moment, so I feel that's a uh, an important part of our practice, and that um, the um, uh, particularly if you find yourself um, 
really needing to have everything explained. You want to have answers for everything. <laughs> you want to be able to explain everything. You, that uh, doubt is uh, or uncertainty is really distressing. Then it's in a way very helpful to be conscious of that, not knowing, uh, just leaving things uh, alone. Say, well, in this moment, that's not known. That's not understood. It's not clear what that is, and that. Uh, the mind can fully know that it doesn't know, knowing that you don't know. And that that, uh, that absence of conceptual knowledge is not a real lack within the heart. You can be, uh, I think in, in uh, Venerable Ajahn Mun's um, Ballad of Liberation from the Five Khandas, he makes that statement, you know, uh, knowing that you don't know, knowing not knowing, that's the, 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 the path or the, the direction for the heart. To be uh, to be at ease with not having the answers, <laughs> to be at ease with not having a a, a comprehensive picture. That, uh, that it doesn't mean that if there, things do come into order and you can see how things work, that's not something that has to be pushed away. But you're not making that 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 ability to explain or to to list, to name something that you depend on. And so then that knowing, not knowing, there's even a Pali word for it. Ananya Tanya Samitindriya, knowing the unknown, is the Pali word for knowing that you don't know. As far as I remember that, that word. So uh, um, there's a little bit more in this chapter, but I'll stop there since we're after seven. To... Any final questions, comments? Okay, we can finish there for today. <laughs>